K-A-L-W. Well, the year that we now have and basically consider almost a writ of God actually has had an amazing history. Today, we explore why February has one extra day this year. When Caesar returned to Rome from his dalliance with Cleopatra, he introduced the leap year. Lost Days and Leap Years, a special episode from 99% Invisible. Then we'll hear how Berkeley protesters helped bring about the ADA. So essentially, at the bottom of it all was that any organization, that could be a hospital, a school, a university, the post office, federal buildings, anything, had to be made accessible to people with disabilities. And this was the first time that that was said. The story of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I'm Hannah Baba, and this is Cross Currents. It's Leap Day. Every four years, February has this extra day. But do you know why? And what do you know about other calendars that have been proposed over the years? Well, today we're revisiting a 99% invisible episode that breaks it all down. Here's host Roman Mars. 30 days hath September, April, June, and November. February has 28 alone. All the rest have 31. Except in leap year, that's the time when February's days are 29. That doesn't even rhyme. Oh, the poem I grew up with was slightly different. Producer Avery Truffleman. 30 days hath September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, except for February, which has 28 days clear and 29 in each leap year. Okay, I think that rhyme's actually worse. Both poems say the same thing, which is that months don't make any logical sense. A month is hardly a unit of measurement. It can be anywhere from 28 to 31 days. Sometimes it's four weeks, sometimes five, sometimes six. You have to buy a new calendar with new dates every single year. It's a strange design. Well, the year that we now have and basically consider almost a writ of God, you know, somehow it's just indivisible, there it is, actually has had an amazing history. That is David Ewing Duncan. And I am the author of Calendar, Humanity's Epic Struggle to Determine a True and Accurate Year. The calendar that the world really uses right now is mostly a sort of joining of the Roman calendar and the Egyptian calendar. It's basically when Caesar and Cleopatra were kind of hanging out and doing their thing. Which is to say, when Roman Caesar and Egyptian Cleopatra were having a torrid love affair. This was before Cleopatra got together with Mark Antony. She was 21, and Caesar was 52. But they got together, and they did what lovers do. Discuss the true nature of the Earth's rotation. And the Egyptians, long before the Greeks came, actually discovered the true length of the year. 365 days. And the Egyptians knew about the length of the year because of the Nile River. They had something called a Nilometer. It was basically a series of steps that went into the Nile. The Nile actually flooded at the same height virtually every year on the same day. And they would just simply mark each year when it hit its height. But the Egyptians also figured out that the year isn't always exactly 365 days. So they added an extra day every four years, just to make sure that the calendar matched up with the seasons. In other words, they invented the leap year. And this was all fantastic news to Caesar, because he had a feeling that the Roman calendar wasn't quite right. 
The Roman calendar year at the time was around 354 days long. Obviously, that's a few days short, right? 11 days about short uh, from the actual solar year. And when you lose 11 days year after year after year after year, the seasons start to drift. There's spring in the winter months, winter in the fall months. And those 11 days were missing because the Roman calendar had always been based on moon cycles. Cleopatra inspired Caesar to switch to a calendar that would be consistent with the Earth's cycle around the sun. When Caesar returned to Rome from his dalliance with Cleopatra, he introduced the leap year, which is called the Julian calendar. Julius Caesar also added back those 11 missing days. And the Julian calendar was instituted throughout the Roman Empire, which is to say, throughout much of the world. But it was still a bit off. The Julian calendar wasn't entirely accurate itself. It was about 11 minutes, 14 seconds off each year. Eventually you had, you were losing days, and then there was a week. And by 1582, Pope Gregory XIII had the wherewithal to say, okay, we are actually, we have an inaccurate calendar. We're worshiping, you know, all of our holy days on the wrong day from what they originally were. And with a few small adjustments to realign the year with the seasons, we have the Gregorian calendar, named after Pope Gregory. And that's what's on your wall or your phone. We all use it. We don't think about it now. And for that reason, there has not been a huge momentum to try to change things. I mean, we basically live with it. But there are a lot of smart people out there, um, have been for centuries, that have come up with better calendars, and there are better calendars. One example of calendar redesign came after the French Revolution. The French decreed the first year of the revolution was the year one, and they made the week 10 days long. This was actually instituted for over a decade. Then Napoleon put the kibosh on that when he became emperor. And later, another Frenchman created the so-called positivist calendar. The positivist calendar was created in 1849 by Auguste Comte. He reorganized the months and renamed them after the great minds of history. Moses, Homer, Aristotle, Archimedes, Caesar, St. Paul. All the great white men of history. Charlemagne, Dante, Gutenberg, Shakespeare. That's Mark Burns, by the way. My name is Mark Burns. I am the visual editor for CityLab. That positivist calendar didn't really take off. It was mostly meant as an inspirational memorial to glorify great thinkers and, you know, patriarchy. However, there was another radical attempt at calendar reform that actually kind of happened. And Mark Burns wrote a piece about it for CityLab. I wrote The Death and Life of the 13-Month Calendar. This was a highly rational 13-month calendar, meant to appeal not to romantics, but to industrialists. Because the wonky, weirdly divided Gregorian calendar was difficult for accountants who had to track monthly numbers, and for the people who had to make the trains run on time. And Moses B. Cotsworth was both of those people. Moses B. Cotsworth was an analytics guy, mostly working in the railway industry. Cotsworth was a British railway man, and he was all about efficiency. The Gregorian calendar wasn't cutting it for him. So let's say there's a month where there's an extra Monday, or there's a month where there's an extra Saturday. That would throw off the numbers from month to month. And that kind of frustrated Cotsworth, so he created his 13-month calendar. In 1902, Cotsworth presented a design for a calendar of 13 months, where every month was exactly 28 days. No more, no less. Four perfect weeks. And this meant the dates were all standardized as well. You'd always know that the 5th was a Thursday, no matter the month. 
The first was always a Sunday. The tenth was always a Tuesday. There'd be a Friday, the thirteenth, every single month. Rational railway men were not superstitious. Clearly, all the month names would stay the same, and then that additional month, another twenty-eight even days, would fall between June and July, and this additional month would be called Sol. S O L. Sol, standing for the month where the summer solstice occurs. And the leap year day would be added at the end of Sol, not February. So every four years, Sol would have 29 days. All right, so 28 days times 13 months is 364 days in a year. That is one day less than the actual solar year of 365. So to make it 365, Cotsworth added a new holiday right before the new year. There's an extra day at the end of the year called Year Day. And Year Day was just a floating day, not part of any particular month, and it would be a sort of global Sabbath. And aside from Year Day, all other vacations would be moved to a Monday. Holidays would always be practiced or observed on Mondays. You don't have to worry about certain months where everyone's out on a Wednesday, and maybe since they have Wednesday off, they want to schedule a Thursday and Friday off. None of that nonsense. Holidays would all be three-day weekends, no Wednesdays off. Cotsworth pitched his perfect calendar around the United States, giving talks about its myriad benefits, but he couldn't find many takers, except for one of the wealthiest and most successful businessmen of that time, George Eastman. George Eastman, the founder of Kodak. Mr. Eastman had a lot of unique interests in addition to his company and his philanthropic work, but this, I have to say, is probably one of the weirdest interests that he had and pursued. Kathy Connor is the curator of the George Eastman House and Collection in Rochester, New York. When he had an interest in anything, he always put a decent amount of money into getting other people to buy into his ideas as well, and he did exactly that with the 13-month calendar. Eastman basically took it upon himself to promote Cotsworth's calendar design, and he started a calendar league headquarters in Rochester, in Kodak's office. He gave a little office to this calendar reform group, and uh, it was there that they um, published and printed some different flyers to hand out to local businesses. They actually convinced a few local businesses to switch to a 13-month calendar. Including, of course... Mr. Eastman's own company. They adopted it at the Eastman Kodak Company in 1924, and they continued to use it until 1989. So they had a 65 years. Let me just repeat that they used this calendar until 1989. Apparently, employees found it useful. When I did sales reporting programs, I I didn't have to worry about, well, this is a 28-day month, this is a 31-day month, this is a 30-day month. I acclimated it very quickly. John Sirocco worked at Kodak from 1986 to 1992, and he actually liked the calendar so much that he tried to bring it with him beyond Kodak. A couple of times, I've actually tried getting companies that I've worked for to go and use a 13-period, you know, a four-weeks times 13 calendar. But like Moses Cotsworth and George Eastman before him, John Sirocco just couldn't convince other businesses to take it on. That said, even within Kodak, Eastman couldn't fully institute the 13-month calendar in its truest form. The calendar, as John knew it, was kind of a modified version. I only knew it as this is the financial calendar of the Eastman Kodak company. Kodak employees didn't observe Seoul or Year Day or change every holiday to a Monday. It was like how some bankers work in quarters or some schools function in semesters. Kodak's internal schedule was organized into 13 periods. J. 
just called period one to period 13. Instead of saying that today was March 6th, we would say that today is the third period, day three. They used the 13-month calendar as an organizational tool for planning finances and production schedules. We programmed and we wrote and we designed applications to work within the Kodak 13 periods. But we still lived our life the way the normal Gregorian calendar was. Because, of course, the rest of the world was still on the Gregorian calendar. Renaming and reorganizing the days and holidays would have been a total drag. And this is basically the same reason why it would be so hard for the larger world to adopt a 13-month calendar. The explanation for how July 4th would work is kind of like the perfect example of how complicated it would be to mentally adjust to this new calendar. That's journalist Mark Burns again. Okay, so on the 13-month calendar schedule, July 4th would have to be moved to a Monday, like all the holidays. So then... It would really be July 2nd. But when you add in Seoul and shuffle the dates around accordingly, that actual day on the solar calendar wouldn't fall in July anymore. It would actually be Seoul 17, but that falls on a Tuesday. So again, you got to make that a Monday, so it would end up as Seoul 16. So there's nothing as patriotic as celebrating Seoul 16. This is why the calendar, in its truest, most regulated form, couldn't fully work at Kodak. I mean, you have to give your employees a vacation on July 4th even if it's not on a Monday. So random holidays and off days persisted. George Eastman knew that if he wanted to standardize the calendar, Kodak couldn't do it alone. He would have to convince the rest of the world to make the switch. He and Mr. Cotsworth, they went to bat a few times in front of a lot of different committees at Congress um, and in our government to try to just explain the rationale. And this was taken completely seriously. Calendar reform became an actual issue of debate for the League of Nations. The League of Nations, as in the precursor to the UN. There are 185 plans before the League of Nations to look at uh, for calendar reform, and Cotsworth and Eastman's proposal was one of the few finalists. Even after George Eastman passed away in 1932, the League of Nations continued discussing calendar redesign. Basically, League of Nations couldn't come to a consensus, and then the rise of Hitler in World War II made it thoroughly unimportant to them, and then the League of Nations folded. Hitler ruins everything. And we just haven't really considered calendar reform since. Perhaps because when designing time and the way people operate, you have to consider custom and culture. It has to be done entirely and completely, or not at all. So who knows, perhaps if everyone decided to adopt it, a regimented calendar could really work better for, you know, finances and planning. But on the other hand, I think it's kind of fascinating that our year is not perfectly regimented. It's out of our control. Sometimes your birthday is on a Tuesday, sometimes it's a Saturday. The Gregorian calendar is this organic instrument that ebbs and flows with the seasons and the rotation of the earth. God, I've spent too much time in California. It's really a bizarre anomaly of history that this calendar that started with Caesar and Cleopatra that, you know, was reformed by a pope. Yeah, it was really the Christian calendar. Um, It's now the calendar of the world. And all we have to help us remember it is a stupid rhyme. That doesn't even rhyme. 
That special episode of 99% Invisible was produced by Roman Mars, Avery Truffleman, Sam Greenspan, and Katie Mingle. It was reported in 2015. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. Tomorrow is the first day of National Developmental Disabilities Awareness Month. So to finish today's show, we're bringing you a story about Bay Area activists who are part of a movement that made a difference all over the country. For the disabled, the signing of Regulation 504 is the difference between living and existing. We're more than handicapped without these laws. We're crippled. Taking cues from the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the disability community rose to fight segregation and discrimination throughout the 1970s. Reporter Truk Nguyen brings us this story from our archives about a movement catalyzed right here in the Bay Area. Ever wonder what that building is connected to the Ashby BART station in South Berkeley? Concord. Go up the ramp and you'll be entering the Ed Roberts campus. The campus is spacious with lots of natural light. Every bit was designed carefully for people with disabilities. Really, what is disability? That's Dimitri Belser. He's the executive director of the Center for Accessible Technology. He's also president of the Ed Roberts campus. Disability is a disconnect between people's abilities and the built environment. I think a lot of disability is actually affected by architecture. The campus was constructed using universal design, making it one of the easiest spaces to get around in. Built to memorialize Ed Roberts, the center continues his work for people with disabilities. He had had polio as a teenager, and he used an iron lung for part of his life. Um, so he was he was quadriplegic. He had very, very little mobility. Um, so a pretty significant disability. And this is in the 1950s and the early 1960s. And this is the time when most people with disabilities with his kind of a disability ended up institutionalized. Roberts was the first person with severe disabilities to attend UC Berkeley. At the time, the dorms weren't accessible, so Roberts lived in Cowell Hall, the school's hospital. A group of students living in Cowell Hall, all quadriplegic, dubbed themselves the Rolling Quads, and they had something to say. They realized they were not patients, but an oppressed minority. From lowering countertops and telephones to widening bathroom doors, the Rolling Quads opened up the campus to people in wheelchairs, making UC Berkeley one of the most accessible in the country. Beyond structural changes, Ed Roberts and the Rolling Quads started the independent living movement. Catherine Kudlick, historian and director of the Paul K. Longmore Institute on Disability, says Berkeley's push for independence in the 60s led to a national battle for civil rights in the 70s. In 1974, the Rehabilitation Act was passed by Congress to benefit veterans returning home from Vietnam with a disability. But one section, Section 504, affected the larger community. It was the first time civil rights language had been applied to disability, and that's where it's significant. So essentially, at the bottom of it all was that any organization, that could be a hospital, a school, a university, the post office, federal buildings, anything, had to be made accessible to people with disabilities. And this was the first time that that was set. 
But both the Nixon and Ford administrations refused to sign Section 504. When President Carter took office in January of 1977, people were hopeful. Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare Joseph Califano said he would sign it, but... I will sign a set of 504 regulations by early May. Now I will do it By April of 1977, people refused to wait any longer. It all started this morning here at the old federal building on 50 Fulton when an incident took place outside. Immediately after that demonstration this morning, the handicapped started invading the building. News outlets called them an army of cripples. This army, the deaf, blind, people in wheelchairs with canes, gathered and occupied 10 federal offices across the U.S. The nation shouted. After just a few days, the occupations in D.C. and the rest of the nation fizzled, but not in San Francisco, where over 150 people gathered. Dennis Billups thinks back to 40 years ago and remembers the Black Panthers bringing him and other demonstrators supplies during the building takeover. They bought um, bandages, soap, all kinds of food. We're talking about beans and rice, chicken, turkey, ham. 24 at the time, Billups had a specific job during the occupation, chief morale officer. He says there was one reason for this. Nobody had a bigger mouth than I did. <laughs> Billups says protesters used their different abilities to help one another. You know, we were their ears and they were our eyes, our hands and, and feet to do stuff. And it was a cooperation of empowerment that was so strong and so powerful and fearless. There was a moment during the occupation when the hot water was shut off, along with the phone lines. Anyone who left the building was not allowed back in. The occupiers had no way to send messages, so deaf people stood at the windows and used sign language to communicate to people below in the street. They signed everything from grocery lists or medical requests to, you know, these are this is what's going on inside. And so interpreters outside then would read the signs and then write down the press releases and they got the word out to the media. So it's this amazing moment of, of, of cooperation. After the nearly month-long occupation, Secretary Califano signed Section 504. Under law, people with disabilities now had a right to accessible public buildings and education the right to federal employment, housing, and health care. Outside of the building, at San Francisco Civic Center, activist and organizer Kitty Cohn spoke to a jubilant crowd. We showed strength and courage and power and commitment that we the shut-ins or the shut-outs, we the hidden, supposedly the frail and the weak, that we could wage a struggle at the highest level of government and win. Public says getting Section 504 signed laid the groundwork for the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, which banned discrimination in all areas of public life. There are still a lot of barriers for people with disabilities. Not all businesses comply with the ADA. If you have a disability, you're more likely to be unemployed, more likely to live in poverty. Civil rights language written into law is an important foundation, says Kudlick. But it takes more than that to wrestle with stigma and the built environment. In Berkeley, I'm True Nguyen for Cross Currents. True Nguyen reported that story in 2017. You can find more of her stories at kalw.org slash crosscurrents. 
Tune into Cross Currents Monday morning at 11. San Francisco's Mayor London Breed wants to screen welfare recipients for drug dependency and compel them into treatment. No more handouts without accountability. We'll explore the implications of Prop F in a special episode from Civic. That's Monday morning at 11. And before we say goodbye, here's some new music from a Bay Area band. I look around, breathe comfortably, breathe comfortably, breathe comfortably. This is San Francisco's The Happies. They'll be playing at Berkeley's 924 Gilman this Saturday. Today's Cross Currents team includes Steffi Puerto, Cheryl Kaskowitz, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Hadil, Marissa Ortega Welch, Angela Johnston, Sunni Khalid, Lisa Morehouse, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba. Baba.